This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. The scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 25, verses 6 through 12. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Hey, thank you, Marty. Uh, Let me see here. Hey, Randy, could you give me a hand here? Thanks. Now, that's a big step. I have to let you know that. Had shoulder surgery back in May. Normally, I try to muscle it, but now I've learned to ask for help, Randy. Isn't that a good thing? Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I wish Lori were here to see that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Randy said, I thought you were going to have me preach. That's not a bad idea. I don't know if you know that uh, Randy recently graduated with his Master of Divinity. And, uh, yeah. And I'm sure are fully capable and competent uh, to do this. So, but thank you. Um, that's an important thing. So, you know, it's been said that you can really tell what's inside of a person uh, when the heat is on or the pressures applied to their lives. And it really is telling uh, because it's what comes out during those times that's an indication of really what's going on in the inside. Uh, you've heard the example before that uh, Christians are like tea bags, right? Now you look at a tea bag and you know, you assume that there's tea inside, but you really don't know that there's tea inside until the tea bag is immersed in hot water. And that's when uh, the tea that's inside the bag is released and you have tea. You know, the thing um, about the Christian life is that there are times uh, when we go through um, just periods or seasons of intensity, uh, times of personal pressure, challenges, adversity, tribulation. Um, Life is full of those things. You don't have to go looking for them. Um, They seem just to come to you, don't they? 
And I know that you know that. And as I'm speaking this morning, there are some of you here, you're saying, Pastor Todd, that's exactly where I am today. I'm that teabag, and I feel like the hot water is being poured out on me. Well, you know, God's design is intention uh, as we pursue Christ and His priorities in the world is that when the hot water of life, when the adversity, when the, the tribulation, when the trials, when the difficulties come our way, that when that happens, that people see more and more and more and more of the life of Christ released from us. Isn't that your desire? Uh, I, I know it's mine. And yet I know there are times when the hot water comes that um, there's not a lot of Christ that comes out of me. Yet I aspire and I desire that there'd be more and more of Christ when those things happen. Uh, I remember an incident many years ago where um, we had a family member and uh, she was going through uh, a divorce. And you know how those things get in families where... Um, you know, you don't want to choose sides, but um, you're seen as choosing a side whether you really did or not. You ever been in that kind of situation? Because you're, you're trying to have a good relationship with both sides of the, the parties that are in conflict with one another, and yet one side looks at you when you're with the other side and thinks, well, you're choosing side, and then vice versa. Well, this was the situation that Lori and I were in. Uh, there were two children in this marriage, and Lori and I had determined, regardless of what happened to their parents, that we were going to continue uh, to be a good influence in the life of their children. And as time went on, uh, the party who had custody of the children said, we would like, uh, or I would like, for uh, my son and daughter to go to church with you. In fact, I'd like them to go to church youth camp this summer, which was a real departure from where they had been. In fact, up until that time, they'd been rather antagonistic towards things of faith and towards us as it related uh, to our faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, in this difficult time, this person uh, recognized that we could be a positive influence and that perhaps, uh, quote, religion could be a, po uh, a positive influence in the life of um, their children. So we did that. And this boy and girl began to attend youth group and then summer came, and they, they heard the gospel message, and um, one of them uh, responded immediately to that. Uh, and things were great until he came home from camp and uh, shared with his mom his concern for her that she needed Jesus Christ in her life because he died for her sins. And unless she received him, that she'd stand before God in judgment, be held accountable and be separated from God for all eternity in a place called hell. Um, that's what he learned about the gospel, that we need Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. And uh, boy, when that happened, suddenly we were no longer a good influence. And I remember this family member called uh, Lori and I to a meeting with her. And she sat across a, a kitchen table from us, and she said, do you know... What my son said to me, well, no, tell me. And she did. And uh, I said, okay. And she said, you know what? She says, I want my son and daughter to be with you, but I don't want you to teach them these things. 
and so it's okay if they continue to come to youth group, but you have to leave out the hell and brimstone stuff, okay? And I said, what are you talking about? And she says, well, you know, I want them to come, but there's certain things in the Bible that I don't want you to teach when they're in youth group with you. And I remember that. And it was like, not only did we feel like our faith in Christ was kind of on trial in a sense, but then we were challenged with what we were going to do with that. Um, and I remember saying, well, you know what? We don't go out of our way to teach on a particular topic. We like to teach from the whole counsel of God's Word. And when certain topics come up, um, like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life, that, that we teach what that means. And uh, I'm sorry, but I, I won't stop teaching that. And uh, she said, well, you know what that means, don't you? She said, you can never see my son or daughter again. I forbid you to see them or have any contact with them. That was absolutely devastating. Um, there was a part of me that just wanted to say, okay, all right, I'll change the lesson plan. I'll make sure we're not going through a controversial, difficult portion of Scripture when they're in class. There's a part of me that wanted to do that. Okay. Can you understand that? That tension, that, that love uh, for family? Uh, that desire to continue to have a part in, in uh, her son and daughter's life. Uh, there was a part of me that just wanted to capitulate and say, sure. But then I remember, you know, I did one of those quick prayers, Lord, what do I say? What do I do, right? And I remember just saying, you know what? Um, more than anything, I think what your son was trying to express is how much God loves you and how much he loves you and how he cares about your spiritual condition. And, uh, you know, I can't, I can't agree to what you're asking. Uh, and she says, well, you've made your choice. And I said, well, it's not my choice. This is a choice that you're making, um, but it's not mine. And from that day forward, um, Lori and I were not allowed to have any contact with these children. Now, these children are adults now, and we've since... Uh, kind of re-engaged and had contact with them. And um, one of them in particular, the, the young man that expressed his concern for his mom and her spiritual well-being, um, just talked to him recently, and uh, he just baptized his son in the faith. And what, a, what an encouragement to know that we, we had uh, some good influence uh, early in his life when he was developing his faith. But you know, there are times in our life when the hot water is poured over us. And the question is, how are we going to respond? What's going to come out? And I remember that day leaving that meeting, and it was just devastating. And I, and I was just asking, Lord, Lord, I don't understand why it has to be this way, why sometimes it has to be this hard to live for Christ in the world, to be a Christ follower. And yet I knew that I could not waver, that I had to maintain my integrity of my personal belief and my calling as a pastor, to teach God's Word, the whole counsel of God's Word, no matter how difficult it is for people or how convicting it might be for them. And I remember at that moment thinking about that and thinking about how important um, my integrity was. And you know, when we think of integrity, when we think of those times when our faith is on trial or we're being challenged, we're in difficult times as we follow Jesus in the world, 
we're reminded that in our lives, people can strip us of everything, can't they? They can take our material possessions. They can um, demote us in our position in life. They can even sever us from relationships. But you know, there's one thing that no one can take from you. One thing. You know what that is? That's your integrity. You have to choose to give that away. No one can take it. You give that away. You choose to give that away. And there are times in our walk with the Lord, there are times as we follow Jesus in the world, there are times when we are called to give an account for the hope that lies within us, that people um, respond uh, negatively to who we are, what we're about, or the message of the gospel. And those are times when our spiritual integrity, okay, is put to the test. And those are times, for me, when I'm reminded that no one can take that, I have to choose to give that away. And uh, more than anything, when my faith or my belief about Jesus Christ, uh, about the power of the gospel, um, is put to the test... You know, I want my spiritual integrity to prevail. How about you? And a story I shared with you this morning is a a real-life story where I was like really put to the test um, because I really wanted a different outcome and yet to stand firm in the faith, um, to maintain my spiritual integrity, I had to say, well, that's not my choice, that's yours. Um, I'm going to continue to live into the calling that I have to be a pastor and to teach God's word regardless of how difficult it might be. We know Paul is in that exact place this morning as we come to Acts chapter 25. You might recall he ended his third missionary journey. He comes to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple to worship and there are um, some Jewish pilgrims that are there for the, the Passover. And what happens? They see him And they remember, this is Paul. This is the one who is a part of a movement called the Way, who all through Asia, and then, of course, in Macedonia, what we know today is southern Europe, uh, was sharing the gospel and literally turning the world upside down. And these Jews who saw him there at the temple uh, remembered Uh, his message and uh, how his message was a departure from what they understood uh, the prophets to have said, the law or even uh, the significance of the temple and as Paul began to preach, not only did uh, Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ, in fact the early followers of Jesus were seen as a, a Jewish sect called the way, but Gentiles were too and not only that, the Gentiles were included And so these Jews who saw him there in Jerusalem at the temple uh, began to stir up trouble. And in fact, the scripture tells us a couple chapters ago that literally a riot breaks out. Well, the Roman commander that was there calls Paul to account, finds out he's a Roman citizen, and uh, asks the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, to come in and and give an explanation of what's going on. And the Sanhedrin come, and they, they levy false charges against Paul. Well, the commander then understanding that these charges were kind of above his pay grade and um, he felt compelled to, to save Paul 
because they were plotting to take his life. There were 40 zealous Jews who wanted to, to kill him. Uh, he sends him to Caesarea, which is kind of the, the Roman provincial capital. And in Caesarea, he commends him to a man named Felix, who's the governor. Uh, Felix and Drusilla, we talked about them last week. And Felix then calls representatives from the Sanhedrin, and they bring a, a prosecuting attorney. And again, they levy, levy uh, charges against Paul. And basically, the, uh, the charges is that he violated the law, uh, that he is kind of the, uh, the ringleader of this movement of uh, followers of Jesus, and that he has defiled the temple. All right? And uh, Felix hears all this. Paul gives his defense. And Felix, recognizing that um, the charges that were made can't be substantiated because there are no witnesses that are present. And under Roman law, a person could not be uh, charged. Well, they could be charged, but they couldn't um, be convicted without the witnesses present. So he's in a dilemma. And what does he do? Well, he holds on to Paul for two years and keeps him under palace guard for two years uh, because he wants to satisfy the Jews and but he doesn't want to turn Paul uh, he doesn't want to turn Paul over to them because he knows what will happen so he keeps him there for two years and during those two years you might recall last week we talked about how he would call Paul in and Paul would talk about the gospel he'd share the message of Christ and not only that he'd make it personal and he would identify areas of the governor's life that that only Christ could change, and he challenged him to change. But for two years, the governor didn't respond. And ultimately, what happens? The governor is recalled to Rome because he's not doing a very good job. Because in trying to make everybody happy, he made nobody happy, and there's lots of unrest. And the Romans didn't want unrest in their provinces. They wanted peace. So they assign a new governor, and that's where we enter into Acts chapter 25 today. His name is Festus. And you know what's going to happen? The first thing he does as he comes to Caesarea, he goes back down to Jerusalem and he begins to meet with the Jewish officials. And it says that he met with them over the course of several days. And you know what the first thing on their agenda was? This Paul thing. It hadn't been settled. They'd been kind of fomenting for two years. And uh, they said, we want you to bring him back down here because we want him to face trial again on these charges. We want to call him to account. And uh, Festus says, no, uh, I'm going back to Caesarea and you can come there and uh, he can stand trial again. And so he goes back. Well, the scripture says in our passage today that they actually, now there's more than 40 people that had plotted to kill him. Now, the Jewish council's in on it too. And the idea is, if they bring Paul down here, then we can finally, right, do him in. He'll never make it to trial. He'll be killed before he even gets there. And really, that's their hope. And so Festus goes back uh, to Caesarea, and they come back again there. And while they're there, Festus is going to ask Paul, listen, Will you go to Jerusalem to be tried there? And our scripture today tells us that Paul says, absolutely not. Because he knows and he's aware of what will happen if he goes there. Now, he's not opposed to taking responsibility for what he believes, right? 
And again, the scripture tells us that they're going to levy the same charges against him that they had the previous two times. And what is it? That he has violated the law and that he has desecrated or uh, he has offended the temple. And uh, this morning in church, Dave Buchanan and I were talking about this passage and he reminded me how Tim Keller in his commentary on the book of Galatians said, no, that's not it at all. It's that Paul understood Jesus to be the new law and the new temple. That in the person of Jesus Christ, you had the fulfillment of all the prophets had promised in terms of the law. And of course, Jesus himself um, changing the understanding of the meaning and, and what actually constitutes the temple of God. And so Paul says, I'm not guilty of these charges. In fact, I'm willing to die if I were guilty of it, but I'm not. And so then he does something that he can do by virtue of his Roman citizenship. He can appeal to a higher court. It would be like someone going through the court system here, uh, appealing to a higher court, to a higher court, to a higher court, and then finally appealing to the Supreme Court, okay, to have a case heard. And that, by virtue of being a Roman citizen, um, Paul appeals to Caesar's court, a hearing before Caesar's court. Now, Festus could have convened that hearing, but he didn't want to. All right? Again, because like Felix, the one who preceded him, he was a consummate politician. He was trying to make everyone happy. In fact, the Scripture says here, in verse 9 of chapter 25, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? What was he wanting to do? Do the Jews a favor. All right? Paul answered, I am now standing, this is verse 10, before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. However, if I'm guilty of doing anything deserving of death... I do not refuse to die, but if these charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And so Festus says, all right, to Caesar you will go. Now, you know the thing I, I see in these past few weeks as Paul goes through hearing after hearing or trial after trial? as he's brought before the same people for the same charges over and over again, I see that he maintains his integrity, doesn't he? He doesn't waver at any point. He's certain of who he is and what he's about, and the message God's called him to, to give. But in the midst of all that, when one might expect him to be downcast, uh, overwhelmed with the weight of the matter. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Not only does he have integrity, not only does he refuse to yield when the hot water of life of following Jesus is poured on him, but even more so, he has hopeful integrity. Hopeful integrity. You see, it's one thing in the midst of difficulty and trial to stand firm but then to say, oh gosh, I'm standing firm, but 
this is, man, I don't know how this is going to turn out. God, what are you doing? And we've all been in that place, haven't you? And yet Paul had something different. He had a, a hope in the midst of the trial, of the tribulation. There was this hope that permeated his integrity. And I was thinking about that. How in the midst of all that this man is going through, how could he be so hopeful? How could he not only maintain his integrity and stand firm, all right, keeping his eye on the, on the goal of going to Rome to testify about the gospel, and yet in the midst of all the adversity, of all the obstacles, there is this, this hope that continues to, to come forth in him. Where does that come from? You know, as I think about that, I think about people that I know, maybe perhaps some that you know in life, those who are followers of Jesus, that even in the, the most difficult of circumstances, when their faith is on trial or their challenge or their personal integrity uh, is at stake, uh, they remain firm, and yet there's this hopefulness. Um, there is something that's different than what you might expect or see from people who don't know or aren't Christ followers. Paul had that. And, and there have been people in my life that I've seen with that. Uh, and when I look at that and I see that, I, say, I want that for my life. Don't you want that for yours? Don't you? I know that you do because I know that there are some of you here that I know personally. I know your stories. Um, you have shared with me things that are going on in your lives. And yet... There's a hope that's resonant. A hope that's greater than any of the adversity or challenge or the hardship or the difficulty or the, the separation of relationship or, or whatever it is you're going through. There's a hope that's present. And that's, that's the kind of hope here that, that Paul exhibits in his hopeful integrity. So there's three things that I see in some of you that I know, your story, that I see here in Paul today that I think are resonant in every follower of Christ who stands firm in the world for Christ, and yet, in standing firm, in maintaining their spiritual integrity, uh, they effervesce this hopefulness. So you're ready for the three things? Here's the first one. We see this in Paul, and I see this in people that I admire and look up to who maintain that hopefulness. The first thing is a commitment to Christ-likeness. A commitment to the process of the Holy Spirit in their life, of, of God's providential care and direction of their life, in which He takes all the circumstances of their lives, good and bad, right? Pleasurable and difficult, and He intends to use those through the power of the Holy Spirit to create Christ-likeness. That is Christ's character. That in the midst of life, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, which we see Paul in, there is a commitment to conforming more and more and more to the image of Christ. And Paul understood, especially in times of trial or adversity or suffering, hardship, that God does His best work. Romans 5, verses 2 through 5. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
Do you see the relationship between character and hope? Between Christ-likeness and hope? The more and more we're conformed to the image of Christ, the more and more that, that our lives become filled with His life and we exude His character, the more and more that happens, the more and more there is hope. There's hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Isn't that good news? Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Given to us. And here we see the Apostle Paul in chapter 25 having both character, but with that character what? Hope. Hope. That's produced by the very circumstances that he finds himself in. Amazing. Now, this is cool. Are you ready? If you have a pencil, write this down or pen. Philippians 2.13 For it is God, right, who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purposes. God is at work in you both to do and to will according to His good purposes, or another translation says, His pleasure. So think about this. In Philippians 2.13, the Apostle Paul says, it's God who's at work in you and I. He's speaking to the church at Philippi, of course, but it's true of you and me. Both to do and to will according to His good pleasure. Right? That's Philippians 2.13. Do you know what Philippians 4.13 says? And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I love this in Scripture when there's this numerical thing that helps you remember Philippians 2.13, God's at work in you, both to do and will, according to His good pleasure. And Philippians 4.13, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay? And what Paul understands, and in his commitment to Christ-likeness, it is the work of God through His Son Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells with us that He is working Christ-likeness. So the first one is the commitment to Christ-likeness. The second one, Confidence in Christ and His promises. Paul had confidence in Christ and His promises. You know, there comes a place in our life when we're crying out and we're asking God or we're asking the Lord to do something for us and it seems like that thing that we're asking for doesn't happen. Maybe we're stuck. Maybe we're having to wait and watch to see what the Lord's going to do. And we continue again and again and again to ask, and yet the very thing that we're asking for isn't happening. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life, those have been the times when God has drawn kind of my, my focus, not upon the things I want to happen, but it draws my focus, He draws my focus back on the one thing that matters, and that's Christ Himself. Do you know that? Paul had great confidence, even in the midst of hardship, because his focus was on Christ himself. He spent two years in prison, waiting, right? And now Festus comes, and he's being put on trial for the same things over and over again. And yet his confidence is in Christ and in God's promises, right? Remember a few chapters back where the Lord came to him in a vision and said, don't fear, take courage, for you must testify to the God. 
He knew that. He believed that. And he kept his focus on Christ. The one thing that was sure, the one thing that was certain, that's what he did. And so not only did he have a commitment to Christ's likeness, but he had confidence in Christ and his promises. And the thing that mattered most was that he focused on Christ. That regardless of what was happening all around him, Christ and Christ alone was enough to sustain him. Boy, I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of confidence. Romans 8, 38 through 39. Listen to what Paul says. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. This is good stuff. Paul writes, We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Why? Because he had confidence in Christ. And he knew this, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, right? Not on what is seen, but is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Wow. Confidence in Christ. That when all else fails, when nothing is going His way, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Rabbi Zacharias says this, Faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in His power, so that even when His power does not serve my end, my confidence in Him remains because of who He is. Even when his power does not serve my end. Even when I don't get my way or what I want. My confidence in him remains because of who he is. And who he is is enough. Right? Well, the third thing is a determination to live. To live out God's call on on his life. Paul had a commitment to Christ's likeness. He had confidence in Christ and his promises. And he had a determination to live out God's calling in his life. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, listen to this. It was the grace of our Lord that was poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. He's a man who knew who he was, where he came from, and where he was in the moment and what his life was to be about. 
And he was to testify to that grace that he had received. That was his call. That's what God had asked him to do. And he was going to remain faithful. He was determined to live out God's calling in his life. And of course, you remember the key verse, Acts 20, 24, which is his life mission statement. However, I consider my life nothing, uh, worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Hmm. And then Philippians 3, verses 3, 13 through 14. Now, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Now, listen to this. But one thing I do, that's that determination. The one thing I do, that's determination. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Another translation literally says, straining right? Straining forward, determined to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you know what? I see these three things in every follower of Christ that I look to, that I admire, that has that hopeful integrity that are pressing on towards the upward call in Christ Jesus. Three things I see in their life and three things that I believe we can have in our lives. A commitment to Christ-likeness, a confidence in Christ and His promises, and a determination to live out God's calling. And when that happens, we stand and we live and we represent Christ in the world with hopeful integrity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, how in the midst of the hardship that we find him in here in the passage today, we find him resolute, standing firm, committed to Christ's likeness, confidence in Jesus, and a determination to live out the call that you placed on his life. And this morning, Father, we ask that in the power of your Holy Spirit, wherever we are in our faith journey, wherever we are right now in our walk with Jesus, we pray and we ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us a commitment to Christ-likeness. Father, you would bring us to a place in life where we would have confidence in Christ, not for what he does for us or what we want him to do, but because of who he is. And that alone is enough. And then finally, Lord, that we would have a determination to live out your call on our life, that we be healthy and missional, that we pursue Christ and his priorities in the world. Lord, would you help us to do that today? We can't do it on our own strength. We can only do it in and through the one who lives in us, Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.